Chats with Larry is a podcast of phone call conversations of me with my best buddy, Larry Keene. Larry is a retired minister and sociology professor, and he has the biggest heart of anyone I know. I'm Rabbi Brian, an ordained rabbi who heads religion outside the box, where I create great spiritual faith religious content for intelligent digital age seekers like you. People of all religious affiliations of none and everyone in between. I decided surreptitiously to record my chats with Larry with the hope that he would later give permission so that you might enjoy listening in. As you can deduce, Larry gave his blessing. Enjoy as we talk about philosophy, religion, sociology, and life. With love, I'm Rabbi Brian. On today's Rabbi Brian Chats with Larry, six things. One, why do we do things that aren't good for us? We'll get back to this in later episodes, too. Two, the seven deadly sins, particularly sloth. Three, busyness, the word serendipity, the word glossolalia, and the word reify. Four, how God reveals God's self to us. Five, science and religion. Six, there's gold in them opposites. Hey, buddy boy. Hi, Brian. Lawrence Charles Keene, how the hell are you? Oh, I just woke up from a nap. Did, did I wake you? No, no. I was on my way to Carpinteria, so I just wanted to take a little nap before I got on the road. You have it in you to, to, to riddle me a question? Yeah, go ahead. What is this thing about human nature? And I think Paul had a quote about it where we know we all need to take some time off. We all know we should be eating healthier food. We all know a lot of things we should be doing, but we don't. What is that about? What was the phrase, the good that I would do, I do not do, and that which I should not do, I find myself doing? Right, that was that's Paul. That's Paul said that. Yeah, and uh, well, that's so true, isn't it, that we, the road less traveled, uh, we don't take the road that we should take, even though we know better. Why? That's a good one. Why, why do we not do what we know is better for us. I remember I saw a documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, I think it was. It was a guy who had a horrible medical condition, and he said, you know, I'm going to just eat healthy for, I forgot how long it was, 30 days, 60 days. And uh, he he cured himself by not eating anything processed, just eating fresh fruits and vegetables. And he interviewed people on the street. He said, you know, there's people on the street eating a pizza and people on the street eating a hot dog. He said, do you know what healthy foods are? And they all said, yep. And they all, he said, do you know what you should be eating? And everyone said, yeah. And he says, well, why aren't you doing it? And, and everyone just laughs. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess maybe Freud had an idea about a Thanatos that we're all trying to kill ourselves secretly. Yeah, I never heard of that. Some idea that we all have this predilection to want to harm ourselves. That doesn't explain why we do it. It just says that we we do it. And I'm looking to you, Larry King, and tell me why do we do well, that kind of thing? I guess at some level, we tend to do the things that are easier, even though they're not better. So it takes a certain amount of gravitas, a certain amount of will and effort to be noble, to do the right thing. But it doesn't take much effort at all to just kind of flow with things yeah, even though they're not very good for us. Some way, it, is it is it Darwinian? You know, the the um, the struggle to survive 
in, in some people is stronger than others. No, that's and yeah, for a lot of for some people, it's just that they it's just too much struggle to to be fit. So the survival of the fittest, you know. So, so I'm just you have to smoke to, a cigarette because I. That's right. Yeah. Well, because it might the, go just once. It. I I don't care if it's good for me or not. I'm going to do what I want, and nobody can tell me otherwise. Well, that's right? you know this notion of the the will. Um, it takes energy, doesn't it? It takes the strength of of purpose. It takes. It's just a whole lot easier to be a sloth. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Isn't that the one of the seven deadly sins? Yeah. Is can we sloth? talk about those seven? Who came up with who? Where's that list? Does that is? Did I don't God know who devised that. God's self. Yeah, I don't know who authored who created those seven deadly sins, but sloth is one of them. Sloth. This, you know. And it's, it defines it as a sin. This notion of slothfulness, of not being industrious. Right, well, that, that's anti-Protestant. It, it looks here that the seven deadly sins were invented by the the Desert Fathers. Mm-hmm. Who were they? I don't know. Desert the Fathers. Desert Fathers. A- E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S. And, and John... N-V... I don't know the guy's name. Desert Fathers are third century common era. Mm-hmm. Early Christian hermits. Well, Bernard of Clairvaux. That's the era of Bernard of Clairvaux was, was in that area. Uh, but uh, this notion of, of being non-productive is it's sinful. <laughs> Slothfulness is violates the very Darwinian impulse within all of us to to be productive. Be anti productive. Yeah. Well I just and if you are you'll you'll be the most fit. My twenty minute meditation make me slothful. To me that's is full of effort to do <laughs> twenty minutes. Well that's why I've been so poor in my life. My meditative skills I've often been envious of your Meditative inclination. What? What do you think? What? What do you think I gain by? It? I, I. I don't. I, <laughs> I just. I have the ability to sit still for 20, 30 minutes, but I. I don't well, know that it yeah. gives me any special superpowers. I just wonder if there isn't a stillness instilled oh, in you. Fancy wordplay there. Yeah, it's. Uh, and and how productive is stillness if you can quiet the soul? Is is that a efficacious thing? Well, don't they say the devil, the idle hands of the devil's workplace? Mm-hmm. But boy, meditation or doing nothing seems anything but idle. Yeah, that is full of effort. I don't see how you do it. There's a that's just discipline. I just I don't know. I just do it, man. There's a yeah. Isn't isn't that what the word zazen means? Oh, just know. sitting. Yeah, well, you know the way I put it, but I, I put a curse word in there. Just fucking say. Oh, of course. <laughs> more, more, uh, more my style. I was going to say a great quote from from Gandhi: "Stop the glorification of busy." Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? Stop the glorification of busy. I think yes. we're all just running around, adding to the problem. 
I, I would like to see more people doing less. Start a revolution that way. There's this great line, I'll bet you know it, in Porgy and Bess, I'm busy doing nothing, and nothing, and nothing is plenty for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got plenty. Of love, yeah. And 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 often busyness is an attempt to accumulate something, as if being busy, the more busy you can be, uh, the more you can accumulate. And if there was nothing to accumulate, one would think there would be less busyness. You couldn't get anything by, by being busy. You yeah. wouldn't do it. Yeah. We, we wouldn't, we wouldn't. What, you used that phrase months ago. I remember, uh, is it Wu Wei non-striving? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Wu, Wu Wei, the idea that we build up karma uh, when we when we try to enforce our own will on the world as opposed mm-hmm. to just taking the will as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got a fun little factoid for you. The word serendipity. Do you know the etymology of that one? Not a way. No. So there was a story, and I'll look up who who wrote it, but there was a story of the two princes of Serendib, which was a mythical place set in India. And these two princes went on journeys, and they go on a journey, and they find, let's say, a tiger in the one part of their journey. And sure enough, the, the next part of their journey, they needed a tiger. And then they come across a log and they pick that up. And the next part of their journey, they needed the log. And the two princes of Serendib, no matter what they did, it wound up serendipitous that whatever they had was what they needed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Serendipity. I, I don't know if I can find the, the story of it right now. It looks like there's a lot of boats named Serendipity and there are a lot of films named Serendipity. But that's that's. Not, not the history of it. What's your study for Saturday morning going to be? Tomorrow we are going to look at the process of learning. Uh, we are going to look at, I was going to do a David Foster Wallace quote about God. We we're going to do a little meditation. Maybe we'll look at this serendipity thing. Here, the three princes of serendip in uh, 1754. Persian fairy tale, mm. three princes of serendip. They were always making discoveries by accident and sagacity of which they were never quite in the quest of. And Serendib was an old name for Sri Lanka. How do you like that? Oh, my. Now we've all learned something. No. Well, I don't, you, you tell me. Uh, the, oh, the other topic I was going to look at tomorrow was, um, I don't know if I'm saying this word right, is glossolalia. Did Perfect, I say that yeah. right? Perfect, yeah. Glossolalia of Second chapter of Acts. Oh, is that what? Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me, because I I only know it. I, I came across it serendipitously. Uh, what does the second chapter of Acts have to do with Glossolalia? Where they, it's after the Feast of Pentecost, they gathered in Jerusalem, and uh, thousands of people came together. Of course, they were all there for the festival. Oh, oh, and, uh, I got it. Remember, I mean, they, Peter was preaching. And they all began speaking, and the disciples began speaking in various tongues. Yeah, that's Glossolalia. They spoke in languages that they didn't even understand themselves, so that everyone should be able to know the good news. Right, exactly, exactly. And some religious groups practice it even today. 
Right. And uh, there is a kind of a self-righteousness associated with it because if you're not a part of the glossolalia movement, you're not among the elect. If you were among the elect, you'd be able to enjoy the gifts that the early disciples possessed, which were speaking in tongues that you weren't trained in. And then, of course, Paul said, if you're going to speak in a tongue, you need to speak in a place where someone can interpret the tongue. Otherwise, you're just blabbering. I think that's the way a lot of churches do it today, is that people just speak in in, in syllables and, and nonsense words. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, uh, and, and the same self-righteousness that occurs today among that who feel super elected to be able to do that was the same self-righteousness he was trying to argue against, that if you're going to blab off, don't do it unless someone can interpret what you're saying. So the warning was issued then not to do what people seem to be doing today. So my, my question, of it, and I, I think the way I came across the word, was I'm always thinking on this theophany of how God would make God's self and God's messages known to people. Sure. Yeah, that's the, that's the dilemma, isn't it? Well, how do you get mm-hmm. dilemma out of that? Well, it's uh, James Joyce, I think, was the author of The Encapsulated Man, that book in which he talks about that we are encapsulated by our humanity. How can the divine... Uh, uh, communicate to the non-divine okay. and vice versa. That's a great how question. Can the non, yeah, how can the non-divine have intercourse with the, uh, what, with what, the divine? What that Two different weird. spheres, yeah. How do you bridge the gap that you're you're raising? Well, it would seem and, that God, in God's infinite power, should be able to make God's self be known to mortals, no? Well, that's the story behind Christianity, isn't it? The word became flesh. Oh, no. It says in John 1, 14. Yeah, 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 yeah. At the beginning, there was the word and the word. Yeah, it was God. And the word was with God. And the word became flesh. So the, that's the the uh, incarnation. So, the that's what, that, so a method to have God intercourse with humanity mm-hmm, is for God mm-hmm. to become man. That's it. Right. That's, that's, that's an option. That's an option. That's the Christian option. Yeah. Right? Other, other options include everything that people had done in the Bible up until then, where God directed, mm-hmm. God gave direct spoke in some way, like to Moses or to Abraham. He spoke in a burning bush. Yeah. And typically through mystical experiences, at least they they appeared to be written that way. That through a mystical, they heard the voice of God. I hear, Joseph heard them. I, I, maybe I'm just a, a wide-eyed, naive, uh, but I think it's got to be democratic. I can't imagine that God would only communicate with some and not want to communicate with all. That's right, but it doesn't seem to be that way, does it? Well, says you. I'm going to bring this all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and say, I think God does speak to people quite clearly. It's just that we get in the way and we refuse to hear it. That's probably more accurate, right? I think that's more accurate that he's speaking all the time. 
It's just that we don't have our ears on. It's a, there's this Buddhist notion that all beings are already enlightened. It's just their delusion that keeps them from knowing it. There you go. That's right. So God that's is probably close. speaking to us all the time. And I think maybe that's also a part in the meditation where it scares people. Is to mm-hmm. Right, that, that still small voice. But the problem with that is, the pro- as I see it, that when you're in pri- a private, secluded place meditating, yeah. it's easy to become deluded that what you're seeing and hearing and feeling is true, and you don't have the group to correct it. Well, the more solitary more we become. Group than I do. Yeah, it, it keeps people from being delusionary. Oh, okay. You know, the more you contemplate your navel, it's easy to become delusional because you don't have others to correct what you're seeing and feeling. So there's a tension there. You can't know the divine unless you find some solitude. Well, I'm not going to listen and, to what the group says the divine is. That That's, <laughs> that's fraught with may, problems. That's right, but maybe it can say what it isn't. You may really okay. be having okay, ac- acid indigestion. <laughs> it's not a revelation. It's just you've got acid indigestion. Right. There was a guy uh, who I know wrote a book called God in My Teeth. Um, and he had a <laughs> mystical experience at the dentist's office, Stra- staunch atheist. Uh, and I believe he still would consider himself that. And he had a mystical experience in the dentist chair. And God well, spoke to him there. <laughs> There's a part of me that says, you know, that's that's possible when other things, everything else is wiped away and you can be open to it. You said that just a moment ago. And Borg had that. He had it driving across Kansas looking at the wheat field. And he had this marvelous mystical experience that seemed so unlike Borg. Right now, he, uh, he's quite a, a, a scholar scholar. Yeah, yeah. He's very much mythologizing Christianity, you know, taking the myth out of it and explaining it in much more humanistic terms. But then the, he says, and I had a, another one on an airplane. I was looking at a fat guy stuffed into his chair. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, he said, I had this connection with him and with everybody on the plane. Right. That's, that's a mystical experience, has a sense of unity, has a sense of yeah. timelessness has a sense of profound, uh, of, of long-lasting good that comes out of it. You've had, I, know. I think everyone's had those experiences. When I'm, I put the list of the seven qualities out to show people, and everyone's had that experience at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William James talks about that, uh, the varieties of religious experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was the father of all that. He, yeah, in the book right. that I just sent you, I, it will come in in a little while. I'm um, so anxious to look at that. He talks all about the the religious experience and William James and 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 Abraham Maslow, uh, who I did not realize yeah. that goal was transcendence. The goal of a human mm. life is to transcend, to to have something yeah. greater, and that love was a a building block towards that. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. It, it it kind of brings the science and religion together a bit, doesn't it? Because he was truly a scientist. Yeah. Well, people really sense do make a, a, a split between science and religion. And, and mm-hmm. they make it seem as though the two are incompatible. 
And that's I, right. I've never yeah. seen that problem. Have you? It seems almost by definition that once you enter the realm of science, there's no, going to be no religion there, uh, and vice versa. The very, you know, the very moment you, you see them coming together in ways. Well, I can see how people get stuck in one or the other, but the the I mean, yeah. Jung talks about the paradox. It's not this. It's not that. It's not neither. It's it's both. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. The very things that make even scientific activity becomes ritualized, like religion is ritualized. And it's all much of both of them get built on hunches and, you know, that they both make religious people live with hunches. And so do scientists, you know, that's the big the more yeah. the more the, someone's a scientist, the more they know they don't know. They don't know. Yeah, their waves are particles. That's right. Yeah, they. What's the great word? I remember that reify. You ever no, run into that, that word? I don't know that. It's a really inter interesting. Reify means to make concrete what isn't. Spell reify for me. R E, R -E I F Y. -E Look it up. You got Google. I'm looking you? it up right now. Yeah. But I had to know how to spell it. To make something, especially something abstract, more concrete or real. Is that what it says? Uh, make something abstract, more complete or real. These instances yeah. are in human reified as verbal constructs. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Verbal constructs. And, and we do that in so many ways. We reify God, you know. Oh, the ultimate. I, get, I get what you're saying. We reify we reify, we deify. I'm trying to make a pun there, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a word you don't hear too often, but it's a wonderful notion is that are we engaged in reification is making real what isn't or making concrete what isn't. Uh, but that's what we have to do in order to have constructs to talk about things. You know, we build a construct so that we can use it to uh, try to explain uh, inexplainable. Yeah. And so it's very, very important. But as long as you, you realize that you're doing it. Um, it takes a little bit of uh, it's, it's, it's a create, you, you know, you're, you're involved in the creative process, you know. So you're playing God a little bit. A lot. And yeah. You're bringing. Uh, there are other games What's the Latin phrase? Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, right, out of nothing. Out of nothing. Yeah. I'll tell you, can I tell you the Hebrew word for that? What's that? It's, it's a great phrase. So at the beginning, uh, Elohim. in the beginning, God created. But it's what God created everything out of is God created everything out of tohu vavohu. <laughs> tohu vavohu means like absolute abject nothing, just chaos. <laughs> It's just a yeah. great fun phrase. It sure is. My goodness, that is it. And that is the process. Of, uh, that's another way that you can talk about reification. It seems like when you and I talk, yeah, we bring up things that I haven't thought about in a long time. You know, I put them on shelf and yeah. haven't used that word for a while. But it just it's kind of like bringing another light bulb into the room. It just helps to illuminate. I like that. And then you, can put it, then you can put it back on the shelf again and use it at another time. Well, Keen, I, I got to tell you, I'm going <laughs> to figure out how to record our conversations 
Um, but I know you told me that that would make you nervous to know that anyone was listening. Well, we have a free form. I love it. it it'll go bounce from one conversation to another. Yeah. But when you look at it, there is a string that attaches all the various things we talk about, you know, and but it's fun to attach those strings. It's kind of like you're forming a necklace that you can put around your neck. And and uh, did, did I ever share the expression with you, the notion of opposite? You used the word paradox a, a little bit earlier. There is a phrase that I um I don't know if it was original with me, if I heard it from someone, I sure don't know to whom I'd give credit for it. But when you think of a blanket on a bed, it's the part that yeah. hangs over the edge. You always that keeps that. you warm. I, I like that. The, so it's the opposite, you know. The, it's not the, the stuff uh, that's right on top of you that keeps you warm. It's the it's the extra. Yeah, it's the opposite of um the golden mean where it says that it's what's in the center, the average, the part that's in the middle. That's important, that's important you know. And But my, my affirmation is that it's the opposite of that. It's the extremes. That yeah. the truth that lies in the extremes that warm us and that we need to realize that how the extremes bring bring us a truth that we wouldn't see otherwise is the part that hangs over the edges, you know, and the, and people don't normally consider that as beneficial. And my, my contention is that if you can't live with the value of that, then you really are not on the path uh, of the divine, the, the quest of truth. You've got to see the wisdom, the value in the differences and how right it, how it, they, it, it's the and that's what i mean that that's what you and i have always found it's it's us talking and figuring out where our where our differences are and and all the similarities and that and, and just putting us up towards each other and and comparing yeah that's right and if you can, and a lot of people can't live with that they have to synthesize everything and appeal to the golden mean. They have to average everything out so that it's in the center. Right. Not right. The that's, that's the melting pot versus the beautiful salad. Mm -hmm. That's right. And there's truth in both of those. I'm not saying that the, that there isn't value in appreciating the golden mean because there, there is a certain amount of gold that you find in averaging things out, but there's also gold in the, in the opposites. The, uh, the Chinese understood it in the principle of the yin and the yang. Right. right that right. It's, in this, it's in this extreme, the very difference of the sun and the moon, soft and hard, those concepts. Uh, it balances. That's right. That's right. And there's a truth in that. And uh, most of us wouldn't have married someone like us. So we marry someone that's often, you and Jane are so different. Well, in, in a lot of parts, we sure are. In a lot of parts, yeah. And, and that's, and that's what those, makes her interesting. There, it sure is. It's less boring. And you learn, you keep learning from each other. Uh, they're instructional, that's for sure. Well, wish me well. I'm going to get on the road. Wish you well. Thank you for chatting. And I do want to also talk with you. I want next time to talk, we got to talk about life after death. Well, let's do it.
I love to do that. And the very last, your dear friend, your dear friend, name escapes me, at Chautauqua that you had the half-hour visit oh, with. Oh, John Shelby Spong. John Shelby Spong's last book, last chapter. Is that the unbelievable book? I think so. Yeah. If you've got it around or access to it, read that last chapter. I'll read that in preparation. Because I wasn't quite sure I was happy with it. So maybe you can help me. (laughs) I love you, buddy. (laughs) Love you too. (laughs) Bye-bye. That was this week's episode of Chats with Larry. Please, before you listen to another episode or do something else, think about two friends who might enjoy listening to this and send them a text or email right now. Tell them to listen to Chats with Larry. Thanks to Steve Koch, my producer. There will be another episode next week. And thanks to all of you who donate and support to Religion Outside the Box. Religion Outside the Box can be found at rotb.org. On the website, you can sign up for the 77% weekly, my spiritual religious faith message delivered to your inbox 40 out of 52 weeks a year. You can shop at the Etsy store for great religious spiritual faith creations. Learn more about the Saturday service and stop on by some Saturday, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streamed dogma free religious service open to everyone. And a special thanks to Virginia Keene and as always to my BFF, Larry Keene. I love you, buddy.